Who knows? The NSA knows. Today, Thursday, June 6th, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The Obama administration defends the National Security Agency's secret collection of phone records from Verizon. Officials say it's a key anti-terrorism tool, but civil liberties advocates are crying foul. And this writer says the Verizon case is just the tip of the iceberg. You see just a tiny bit of NSA above this ocean of secrecy. And then what's going on below it is anybody's guess. And later on the program, Britain finally apologizes for human rights abuses in Kenya in the 1950s. An American historian who helped bring those abuses to light was with survivors in Nairobi today when the announcement was made. More than anything, it was emotional watching these claimants receive the justice that they have asked for for so long. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You've probably used the phone today, so are you worried yet? National Security Agency's secret collection of phone records from Verizon is on most Americans' minds today. The Obama administration is defending the practice as a necessary tool to keep the nation safe from terrorist attacks. Britain's Guardian newspaper broke the story about the secret court order authorizing the seizure of Verizon records, and the disclosure has opened up a whole bag of questions about how far the government is reaching into our privacy in the name of security. James Bamford has written extensively about this. His latest book is The Shadow Factory, the ultra-secret NSA from 9-11 to the eavesdropping on America. It's always sort of like the uh, tip of a iceberg where you see just a tiny bit of NSA above this ocean of secrecy. And then what's going on below it is anybody's guess to some degree. And the problem is today it's a digital world and NSA is the largest intelligence agency on earth. They're building this data center in Utah, which will be completed in September for storing data, a million square feet, uh, $2 billion to store telephone calls, email, and what the public knows about it is very little. So on this latest news, what kind of information are they collecting? What the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court order indicates they're collecting is what's known as metadata. It's the information about a phone call, but not necessarily the actual conversation. So it's the who's calling whom, uh, where are they calling from, uh, where is the person located at the time their calls are being made, how long is the call, have they called this person before, how often do they call this person. Everything you can find out about a telephone call except for the actual conversation. Some people have suspected that uh, because this FISA order was issued on April 25th that it's uh, associated with the Boston Marathon bombings. Do you think it is? No, I think it's been going on for a long time. It sounds like it's been going on ever since the Bush administration. The difference is in the Bush administration, it was illegal. Since then, they created this Foreign Intelligence Surveillance uh, Amendments Act and revamped the Patriot Act to some degree. So what was illegal a few years ago is probably now legal in some um, secret back corner of the Justice Department and uh, NSA. So give us a sense. I mean, you've got all this information, millions of phone records. What are you looking for and how do you look for it? If you're the intelligence agencies, what you'd be saying uh, right now is that uh, 
Well, remember the Boston bombing. It would have been very nice if we uh, had uh, uh, the two brothers' phone communications uh, going back three or four years or whatever. Uh, we could look back and say, hmm, three years ago they called, uh, they made a number of phone calls to Chechnya or they made a number of phone calls to somebody who's on the um, terrorist list or whoever. So they put two and two together and find out that these guys were linked to uh, a particular person. My argument is that... Uh, They've had very bad luck in the past, and the main reason is not because they collect too little, but because they collect too much. And every time there's a terrorist incident, they want to build the, the haystack uh, bigger, which makes it much more difficult to find that needle. As you say, they're collecting the metadata, but is there stuff in that metadata that we can find out that goes beyond just uh, call duration, uh, phone numbers, and where the number originated from? Well, you can't find out the actual conversation through the metadata. You can just find out who's connected to who. So that's pretty much the extent of it. The problem is we didn't know about the warrantless eavesdropping of the Bush administration until there were leaks. We uh, we didn't know about this until there were leaks. We didn't know about the uh, uh, drone attacks on Americans until there were leaks. So you have, on the one hand, an administration that's uh, tougher than any other administration on leaks. And on the other hand, it's uh, becoming the most secret administration uh, so, as you said, that article you wrote last year for Wired describing the construction of the Utah Data Center for the NSA, which is going to open this September, as you said, and will be a monster repository of information on uh, all of us. Based on today's news, where is all this headed? Well, the problem is is that it's all secret. And the people who are actually protesting against it don't uh, have the basis to protest because the it's administration secret. just says, uh, where's the proof? How do you know we're doing this? We're not doing this. Uh, prove it to us. And um, that's why uh, leaks like this are very important. And that's why the administration has been cracking down on leaks. It's this catch-22. The people like me that write on these issues uh, need whistleblowers. But uh, the more the administration cracks down on whistleblowers, the less there are available to share information. Journalist James Bamford, his book is The Shadow Factory. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, gave clearance for the NSA's phone record sweep on April 25th. The timing has many speculating about a connection to the Boston Marathon bombings investigation. We can't know for sure, but it got us wondering about the status of that investigation. Julia Kayem is a foreign affairs columnist for the Boston Globe and a former Homeland Security official. Uh, Julia, what's new and noteworthy in the investigation? There's so many different pieces to the investigation now. So we'll start with the core one, which is the case against the younger Snarin F brother, as well as the investigation into any foreign links. The House Intelligence Committee went to Russia to speak with Russians about what they possibly knew about radicalization or, more importantly, whether a foreign group had knowledge and helped assist in the attacks on the Boston Marathon. Their discussions were, I guess, a good way of saying it, odd. Uh, there were a number of different aspects to their visit to Russia, including the involvement of a an American actor and others who would try to get them to meet with Russians and Chechnyans and figure out what's going on. I have to admit to you that I think the House Intel Committee visit will come up with almost nothing. The Russians have not been very forthcoming in the investigation. So what that essentially means is that we're dependent on the FBI and others who would honestly assist in this investigation to determine whether there was any direct 
foreign terrorist links. And then there is, of course, the case here. There will be a trial unless there is a guilty plea uh, in order to avoid the death penalty. And that will take months, if not years. I mean, one story related to the bombing, though though the links are still hard to see, and, and that makes it kind of a sticking point, is that of the FBI killing of Ibrahim Todashev in Florida last month. What, what can you tell us about that? Okay, so Todashev was a friend of Tamerlan. They worked out together in Boston. And there has been an ongoing investigation about the homicide of three of their friends a few years back on September 11th. And so that investigation was sort of ongoing. And the FBI uh, went to go visit Todashev in Florida. There was some altercation that no one can quite figure out what it was. And Todashev was shot dead by an FBI agent. I have to say that rarely happens. Those are not common incidences. And there is an internal FBI investigation into what in fact happened. Originally, uh, there were stories that Dadashev came forward with a gun or had some weapon. The FBI has has backed down from that story. So we have no idea. And the FBI has not been forthcoming at all about what happened in that house in Florida. But we have one, Tadashev is dead. He had relationships with the older brother. No one thinks he had any involvement with the Boston Marathon attacks, but may have had involvement with the three homicides um, in Boston. So that's where that case is. And the FBI is doing, of course, a separate review of what in fact happened and how did the altercation start and why did it end in a deadly manner. And Juliet, as for the entire investigation right now into the Boston Marathon bombings, what bothers you the most that you really want an answer to that you don't have yet? Well, one is clearly what happened in Russia and who Tamerlan was meeting with and how much the Russians knew about this. There is a lot of scapegoating going on right now. I tend not to believe much of what the Russian intelligence agencies are telling various government officials, including the House Intelligence Committee. I think everyone is trying to say, look, we knew it. If only the FBI had heard it, had listened to us things would have been better. Uh, We just can't know right now. So a big question about what happened in Russia and how much were the Russians following it. And then also, obviously, and this may be because I live not very far from where these bombs were made, Mm -hmm. there is a big question about Tamerlan's wife, how cooperative she's been. And that's also relevant because if they were building the bombs in a residential area and she knew something of it. I think that her involvement is very relevant to making a case against the younger brother and to understanding, in fact, how did they manage to be so successful at building the bombs, placing them and having them go off at the moment when the Boston Marathon was most crowded. So those are are two of many questions that remain in the case. Boston Globe columnist and former Homeland Security official Juliet Kayam. Always good to speak with you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Usually, if we cover something at the UN on this program, it's going to be pretty bleak. The situation in Syria or Security Council attempts to stop genocide. But today at the UN, fun. Fun that hasn't been had since, well, since Secretary General Ban Ki-moon danced Gangnam style with Psy last year. And again, it's Ban Ki-moon having the fun. He's now a new holder of a 10th degree black belt. The World Taekwondo Federation, or WTF, offered the South Korean Secretary General the black belt in recognition of how closely matched the WTF's values are with the United Nations. Bruce Harris is the CEO of USA Taekwondo, the Olympics' national governing body for Taekwondo here in America, and is also an experienced competitor and referee. So, Bruce, the values of the WTF are closely matched with the UN. I can only ask you, WTF? 
Yes. <laughs> well, WTF, of course, is the World Taekwondo Federation, and that's the international governing body for Taekwondo, the Olympic sport around the world. And the values of Taekwondo are very simple but very powerful. They include courtesy, integrity, self-control, perseverance, and indomitable spirit. And all of those qualities are embodied in large part by the UN. And uh, where does beating your opponent come into those values? (laughs) Well, that's uh, self-discovery. Oh, that falls under self-discovery? Of course. Yeah. I mean, this is symbolic, of course. Uh, Ban Ki-moon is not uh, actually a a 10th degree black belt in Taekwondo, but can you tell us how rare 10th degree black belts are? Well, normally they're given posthumously for accomplished Taekwondo martial artists that have been very prominent in our martial art or for people who found a branch of Taekwondo. So this is very rare indeed. It's it's an honor given, again, usually posthumously. But since uh, Dr. Moon is not dead yet, it's a rare honor. So are, are, have there ever been any 10th degree black belts who uh, get the honor while they're still in the sport? No, usually it's politicians or high-level people such as presidents, um, Ban Ki-moon is secretary general of the U.N., Uh, so it's usually to influential politicians, but not people within the martial art. What level are you? Well, I'm testing for my eighth time in another month. So, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin has a black belt in karate and a red belt in judo. Um, If it were Vladimir Putin with his belts, and I've seen him in action, he looks pretty uh, daunting, versus the symbolic black belt with Ban Ki-moon, who wins? Well, I think they would discuss it and not fight. (laughs) Wow, you're a diplomat too (laughs) Part of being Taekwondo Bruce Harris is the CEO of USA Taekwondo He spoke to us uh, in an airport, busy airport Thanks for sharing a few minutes of your day with us, Bruce Sure, no problem Still ahead, making Lunch Ladyland a bit more environment friendly On the world from Public Radio International The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's hard to admit a mistake, even harder for governments to admit they did something wrong and compensate the victims. But that's what happened today. The British government announced a multi-million dollar settlement with over 5,000 Kenyans. This story goes back to the 1950s when Kenya was still a British colony and the scene of a violent uprising. The rebels came mostly from the Kikuyu ethnic group and went by the name Mau Mau. American historian Caroline Elkins helped uncover abuses committed by the British during the so-called Mau Mau Rebellion. Elkins is in downtown Nairobi, where she's been spending the day with many of the 5,000 plaintiffs in this case. So, Caroline, tell us what happened today in Nairobi. You know, just an extraordinary day. The British High Commissioner read the statement that was made by William Hague today in Parliament in London, whereby uh, the British government officially, if you will, apologized. They expressed, quote-unquote, sincere regret and admitted to the torture that their colonial officers and administrators perpetrated in the detention camps here in Kenya in the 1950s. You know, it's just an amazing moment. Nobody, I think many of us, I I wrote a book called Imperial Reckoning, which chronicled this and Mm -hmm. which was some of the basis for the case. 
I was also an expert witness. And, you know, quite frankly, I think many of us never thought we would see this day uh, where the British government not only validated the claimants and their sufferings, but um, offered, a, a, as I said, a sincere regret or apology, and then uh, a approximately a 19 million uh, pounds sterling uh, payout to the claimants. Now, I know, Caroline, you've spoken with a lot of survivors today. How many Kenyan survivors were in Nairobi for this announcement? About, you know, approximately 160 came. Uh, they came from all over, upcountry Kenya, as far as Mount Kenya, which is probably about a four-hour drive. They, they came from hours away. In fact, I'm looking right now across the street. They're loading back onto the, uh, to the buses to go back up north, upcountry to their farms. And it was, you know, it was quite something. You looked around the room and... There were a mixture of, of, of tears rolling down faces, you know, creviced with, with the anguish of, of so many years of being denied their justice to eruptions of joy and breaking out in song. It was a very, very emotional day. Uh, frankly, all of us are just uh, quite spent from it. And more than anything, it was emotional watching these claimants for the first time after more than a half a century receive the justice that they have asked for for so long. What kind of things were they telling you, Caroline? You know, it was extraordinary, the the levels of the brutality from castrations to rapes, uh, forced sodomies with, uh, with foreign objects like uh, broken bottles and, and snakes and vermin. Uh, bottles were inserted to, to women's vaginas filled with uh, paprika pepper or kerosene. It was, I spent years um, interviewing, I interviewed about three or four hundred uh, victims uh, in the process of writing my book. And one was, uh, you, you simply couldn't believe the cases one after the other. And it was unimaginable the kinds of crimes that were perpetrated. And quite frankly, for decades now, up until today, the British government denied this ever happened. Now, the British government had argued that responsibility for any abuses was transferred to the government of Kenya when it was granted independence mm -hmm. in 1963. What, yes. ha what happened to that argument? What changed in British policy that we've got this uh, apology and uh, reparations today? Well, you know, I think that there were, there were two separate hearings that took place. And uh, in the first one, they, they made this argument that the liability and responsibility transferred to the Kenyan government. And the justice, uh, Justice McComb, who was presiding over the case in the high court, called that argument, quote-unquote, dishonorable, which, of course, in uh, somewhere like the British High Court is an extraordinary um, charge made by the judge against the British government. And so that's at the point at which they, they, they jettisoned that claim and moved on to, to others in, in order to try to get out of the case. So each claimant gets a, a one-time uh, payout of about $4,000, which in Kenyan terms, I guess, is about five times the average annual salary. But it's not a huge sum. Do, do you see this as reparations with an uppercase R or an apology with a payout? You know, I, I, I see it as reparations with an uppercase R because I think we have to, you know, I think a few things. I think that ultimately the settlement would not have happened if there was not, you know, reasonable unanimity amongst the claimants that they, this is what they wanted. And I think we have to really bear in mind the kind of internalized um, uh, pain and suffering and bitterness that has taken place with many of these claimants over the last 50 years. And so, therefore, the validation that th these crimes occurred and a form of apology was as important, if not more so, than the financial payout. And I think it's important to, to bear that in mind. I also think it's important to bear in mind that this case was settled. And, and had it remained in the courts, it could easily have gone on for years. The outcome may have been unpredictable. And the other thing to bear in mind is once these claimants die, 
the case goes away. There is no successorship in terms of uh, their descendants being able to sue the government. And so there, was a, there were many factors involved in accepting this, but I think the sentiment felt by the claimants was very much that this is a reparations with a capital R. Where else have we seen an apology like this, anywhere in the world? Not, th- not from the British, not anywhere. I mean, we've seen uh, a not dissimilar in an earlier period, sort of a, 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 a kind of a, a regret statement made for the slave trade. Um, but other than that, this is the first kind of its kind for what we would consider to be the modern British Empire. And it's quite extraordinary, actually, and I think is going the reverberations of this are going to be quite something. And I think, frankly, none of us are really going to be able to predict what the impact this is going to have, not only on Kenyans, but also former colonized populations and, of course, the British population itself at home. Well, I was going to say, try try to imagine. I mean, how far could a decision like this reach? Could it, could it force other former African colonies to revisit their own colonial past? One wonders about Belgium and Congo, site of other colonial atrocities. Well, absolutely. I think one of the, the concerns and certainly one of the things that, that's being talked about a great deal right now is, is that does this case open up other possible cases in other parts of the former British Empire, whether it's Malaya, uh, Cyprus, um, colonies where there are similar kinds of counterinsurgency operations? And, you know, the, the, the short answer is yes. Claims are in the process of being uh, filed. But the, the real issue will be the, how much historical evidence do these other cases have? I mean, as you say, your book, uh, Imperial Reckoning, uh, it was a basis for the Mau Mau case. You, you followed this case like no other. Emotionally, what's it been like for you following the slow progress of this case and then today with this groundbreaking news and, sure. and announcement? Well, it, it's obviously, um, you know, it's, I've, I've, I've had emotions that have ri- risen and fallen, like the claimants. Um, I've also been expert witness to the case, which has meant I've, I've, I've given hundreds, if not thousands of hours to reviewing documents, creating uh, witness statements for the court, uh, liaising with the attorneys, because this is really, this is a case where history is on trial or has been on trial. And so therefore, the law firm of Lee Day, which has been exceptional, has been dependent upon the historical knowledge that we've been providing. Um, And certainly it was, you know, myself and a team of graduate students at Harvard that have been working, you know, sometimes round the clock at various points over the last four years. to make sure that these claimants and their attorneys had the historical evidence that they needed. Historian Caroline Elkins helped uncover the abuses committed by the British during the Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya. Today, London expressed regret and agreed to pay a settlement to survivors of that rebellion. Caroline joined us from Nairobi. Caroline, thanks very much. Thank you. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Next up in our series on food and climate change, trying to fish in a climate-sensitive way. It kills me to ship this stuff. We ship tunas to Japan. It's like the worst thing ever. But they're willing to pay. And at the end of the day, my job is to sustain local fishery. And how changing your lunch menu could help. That's ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. More than a thousand meals. That's how many times you and I and most other people will eat over the course of a year. Incredible, right? But until recently, not many of us paid a whit of attention to the connection between those meals and our climate. But climate change is starting to press the issue. And so more of us are starting to eat in a more environmentally conscious way by choosing things like sustainable seafood or locally grown vegetables. Those individual choices do add up. But what if you served more than a million meals a year? John Miller met someone who does and who's trying to make every one of them more climate friendly. His report is the second installment in our new series, What's for Lunch? For those of us who grew up standing in line for all-purpose patties and reheated frozen whatever, it can be hard to imagine institutional cafeterias leading a revolution in responsible eating. But that's what Helene York sees when she looks at her plate. First of all, the center of the plate literally are green beans. I have very little carbs, and I have modest amounts of protein. I've got a lot of vegetables. And 90% of what's on your plate is not from within 100 miles. It's like within 50 miles. Today, York's at a dining hall at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, visiting executive chef Jim Lachance. Both work for the food service company Bon Appetit, which runs about 400 kitchens around the country at colleges and universities and at companies like eBay and Amazon and Twitter. There are so many different ways of getting vegetables here. You can easily fill your plate with vegetables, and then the protein is a delicious topping. The topping today is a fillet of redfish caught by a local fisherman. The redfish is terrific. And I like that Cajun spicing on it. It really works with it, right? Helene York was hired to put sustainability at the center of Bon Appetit's business model. She calls herself an internal activist. For the last few months, she's been on loan to Google. She's here in Massachusetts to make her pitch to chefs at the company's Cambridge office. Two big ideas I want to communicate today, how the food system contributes to climate change and how climate change is altering the food system. All right, most of you... In a big, bright seminar room, York explains to a half dozen chefs how cows and fertilizer for animal feed emit huge amounts of powerful greenhouse gases and how 40% of the food we produce is never eaten, meaning all those emissions are for nothing. So what can we do as chefs and food service providers? Number one, I think within all of our power is a radical reduction in food waste. By not buying too much, by using more of what they do buy, and by composting scraps, York says Bon Appetit chefs around the country have already cut the equivalent of 5 million pounds of CO2 every month. That's like not driving more than 6 million miles. Second big area... Reducing your use of meat and dairy products. This is where it gets, let's say, creative. York says company chefs are making meat portions smaller, but tastier and more interesting. And they're doing more with vegetables and grains. The idea isn't just to lower the climate impact of a given meal. It's also to change the way millions of us think about the way we eat. York says the message can go up the ladder, too. Over time, I've come to realize that Working for a larger company, I have some power to influence the supply chain. Like by helping huge meat and chicken and grain companies find ways to reduce their emissions. The goal here is long-term, balanced food system sustainability. 
If the contract restaurant companies work with the big protein producers, the big cereal manufacturers to make improvements, that will benefit everybody. Still, a big part of York's low-carbon food plan involves buying from smaller local and regional suppliers. They're generally the best source for fresh food, and they help fortify local economies against the risks of climate change. But it can take some extra effort. Welcome. York and I drop in on Jared Auerbach, owner of Red's Best Seafood on the Boston Fish Pier. Auerbach's the guy who supplied the fish we ate at MIT. What other white fish would you suggest in New England is a good alternative to cod? Whatever we caught the most of the day before, that's the best alternative to cod. Because they're all good. Auerbach has created a high-tech system for buying and marketing fresh local seafood. His goal is to help the little guys compete with the big factory ships. But to get the best price, he often ends up flying his product to high-end restaurants around the world. It kills me to ship this stuff. We ship tunas to Japan. It's like the worst thing ever. But they're willing to pay. And at the end of the day, my job is to sustain local fishermen. Ideally, Auerbach says, he would like local customers who will buy a lot at once at a fair price and take what's in season. That's why he was so excited when York came along. We started out five, six years ago with the hope that six years later there'd be people like Killeen. We set out with a mission to be able to fulfill this demand that we thought was necessary and we believed would come, and now it's here on a large scale. Major universities, major hospitals stepping up to the plate. Helene York says it'll be a while before climate-conscious cooking finds its way from the MITs and Googles of the world into the mainstream. But more food service companies are embracing the idea, to which York says, bring it on. After all, we all eat from the same planet. This is going to be a long-term change. It's a culinary change. It's a generational change. But if we keep on with this effort, I think we're going to get there. For The World, I'm John Miller, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Our series, What's for Lunch, is part of Food for Nine Billion, a two-year project of Homelands Productions and the Center for Investigative Reporting with broadcast partners PBS NewsHour and American Public Media's Marketplace. You can explore much more of the series at theworld.org. What's for Lunch is focusing on how to make the world's food systems more climate-friendly. Of course, the most basic requirement of that food system is to provide everyone with a healthy diet. That's something that eludes millions of the world's poorest people. But a study in the latest issue of the medical journal The Lancet finds that a few small changes could make a huge difference. The study lists 10 fairly simple and inexpensive approaches that its authors say could save the lives of almost a million children a year in the developing world. Sulfikar Bhutta is one of those authors. He's an expert on child health at the Aga Khan University in Karachi in Pakistan. And he says the most important changes actually have to do not so much with children as with mothers. The first take-home message is that you need to address the health and nutrition of girls and would-be mothers as well as mothers to address child undernutrition. The second take-home message is that simple interventions that address infant and young child feeding promotion strategies to scale up exclusive breastfeeding, this is a life-saving intervention. What we are also saying is that breastfeeding is not enough unless it's coupled with appropriate complementary feeding. Buddha says that means ensuring better quality and more diverse diets for families who can afford them and access to nutritional supplements for poorer families. But he says improving child nutrition requires thinking about more than food. 
addressing issues like optimizing the age at marriage for young girls, making sure that we don't have children having children, that we do not have multiple pregnancies which principally deplete women. Those are critically important, and they are related in turn to issues like economic empowerment, education, and opportunities for women and young girls. But when you come to nutrition-specific interventions, you've got to differentiate between things that can be done where food insecurity is not an issue. So if people don't have access to food at all or don't have access to good quality foods, just asking them to eat more of the same is not going to resolve the problem. And they're providing appropriate diets and support, economic support to make that happen is very important. And Bhutta says some of the most effective ways to ensure access to healthy and diverse foods are actually some of the same things that need to be done to respond to climate change. Increasing awareness of climate change also opens the door to investments that need to be made for improving agriculture, productivity, biofortification, of putting in economic policies to support small-scale landholders, homestead gardening, and provision of food security at a small household level. Those are things that we ought to be looking at at the same time. So I think a major component of planning is to look at sustainable agriculture. Professor Zulfikar Bhutta chairs the Division of Women and Child Health at the Aga Khan University in Pakistan. His new study on interventions to improve maternal and child nutrition appears this week in the journal The Lancet. You better start pedaling for today's GeoQuiz because our destination is China's largest city. Bicycles have historically been the cheap, efficient way there of getting from point A to B, but now fixed-gear bikes are becoming the must-have fashion accessory for the city's hip young professionals. The flat terrain at the mouth of the Yangtze River makes it an ideal place for fixies, and with a population of over 23 million, cycling is a great way to avoid the mega-traffic jams. The city has been called the Paris of the East, but with the surge in fixies, it's more like the Williamsburg of the East. Which Chinese city is it? We're back later with the answer. Now, if the latest Senate immigration bill becomes law, millions of people will need to learn English to get on that pathway to citizenship. That could be tough for many immigrants who work multiple jobs and have little access to educational opportunities. Well, a program in California addresses that by giving immigrant janitors the chance to learn English at their workplace. The world's Jason Margolis reports from San Jose. When Daniel Montes was 18, he moved to the United States from Mexico. Everything was an adjustment, but nothing was more difficult than the language. It will be equal to losing your voice and not be able to speak from one day to the next. Montes found work as a janitor. He says he remained virtually silent at work for two years until he found ESL classes offered at a church in San Jose. It was a big commitment, and it was very difficult physically to um, to sustain. There was times when I would lose my pencil because I was so tired from working two jobs. That was the late 1970s. Today, Montez runs the company Brilliant General Maintenance in San Jose. He employs about 300 janitors who work on contracts at tech companies in the area. And for many of the janitors who are immigrants like Montez, the path to learning English is easier. 
Thirteen years ago, the Janitors Union in California, SEIU, struck a bargaining agreement with contractors like Montez. Employers contribute a few pennies per hour work toward training programs, everything from health ed to parenting classes to English instruction. Companies who hire the janitors must independently agree to allow classes at the work site. And in the past two years, a growing number of Silicon Valley's major players have begun transforming boardrooms into classrooms, Facebook, Cisco, and Adobe among them. I visited a class at Google's Mountain View campus. So I'll ask you, yo le voy a preguntar, how are you? How are you? Mm-hmm. Y que es la respuesta? What would you say? The classroom has a teacher, and student janitors also pair up with volunteer tutors, Google employees. There are classes at night and in the morning, starting early, an hour before either the student or tutor starts work. Janitor Edith De La Rosa from Mexico started taking classes here last year. Before work here, I'm worked three, I have three works, and I don't have time for school. So when I come into Google, I start to English. The convenience of learning English at the workplace isn't just benefiting janitors. It helps the companies as well. A Google manager I met expressed his support for the training program, but he preferred that I let the janitors do the talking. Edith De La Rosa says she's certain she's a better employee now. Every day I'm learning two or three words. It helped me when conversation with the clients. Uh, for example, excuse me, you know who is fixing the, the toilet or the lights or something? Oh, no, and I say, oh, the, the water is come to the floor. Oh, yeah, I do it. Let me, let me take the, something for the cleaner up. Even that basic conversation would have been impossible last year. But again, companies like Google are not obligated to open their rooms to the janitors, and many California companies are refusing Allison Asher Weber is associate director at Building Skills Partnership. It's the nonprofit that coordinates the English classes. She says many companies just aren't interested in speaking with her. When anyone hears about it, when foundations hear about it, the government, it's held up as a win-win partnership. It's labor, it's the community, it's the biggest corporations in the world partnering for the janitors. It's surprisingly hard to sell because it's a subcontracted workforce. Often the corporations that employ them indirectly, don't even want to hear or talk about it. It's not their bottom line. It's not what they do. They're just about numbers on a finance sheet. As long as the rooms are clean, it's all about cutting costs. Weber mentions Intel and Chevron as two firms that haven't allowed the program. I sent multiple emails and placed phone calls to both Intel and Chevron to ask about the English learning program. Neither responded. Weber calls this attitude short-sighted. There's plenty of talk about how Silicon Valley is splitting into two classes, rich and poor. She says the area needs more mid-level managers. How are we going to get people to check the water system at the sewage treatment center? How are we going to get people to become firemen, be metal workers and machinists? She says English helps immigrants to step into those positions. But learning English in California is becoming increasingly difficult. In recent years, adult education programs statewide have been slashed by some 60 percent. Five years ago, the San Jose School District enrolled 10,000 adult education students. Today, there are less than 2,500 adult learners. And with these severe cutbacks, that makes the option to study English at work all the more critical. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, San Jose.
Jason's story is part of our Global Nation series exploring stories of a changing America and its people. Language is one important part of the series, not just learning English, but also the many languages that distinguish immigrant communities. So what does that look like where you live? Join our Global Nation reporting on Instagram. Just take a photo of a non-English sign or poster in your neighborhood and include the hashtag Global Nation. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Fixies. If you live in Williamsburg in Brooklyn or The Mission in San Francisco or even just down the road from my studio in Alston, you know what a fixie is. Fixed gear bikes are the unofficial vehicle of choice for hipsters. They are lightweight bikes, they are single speed, and they often have no brakes. You know, the track bike of the Olympics for risk-prone urban dwellers. Well, apparently the fixie is becoming popular in China. Jennifer Duggan lives in Shanghai, which is the answer to our geoquiz today. Jennifer's written a blog in London's Guardian about how the Chinese are falling for fixies. Jennifer, China is a part of the world where bicycles are the main form of transportation for millions of people. Why have fixed gear bikes suddenly taken off? For a number of years, the bike had sort of gone out of fashion. It was considered something of maybe China's more sort of poor past that they wanted to leave behind. But the fixie bikes would be more among young people who are looking for sort of a fashion element to their way of getting around, I suppose. And so for people who do go fixie uh, with their bikes, uh, do they use brakes or not? Um, I think for the most part, yes. Um, I talked to a couple of people involved in the sort of fixie scene here in, in Shanghai. And in general, most of the shops that really specialize in fixed gear bikes here generally won't sell them without brakes for, for use on, on streets here in Shanghai. The traffic here in Shanghai can be quite intense. There's a huge number of cars. So I think it would be quite dangerous for unexperienced. I mean, they, they, they said they do sell them to people who've been cycling for many, many years and have a lot of fixed gear experience. But certainly for people starting out, they tend not to sell them without brakes. Yeah, I could imagine that would be hazardous in a place like Shanghai. I gathered yeah, there have been concerns raised uh, that the Chinese government may ban fixed gear bikes? These bikes particularly have become popular, like I said, among young people. And there are a lot of teenagers in China have become very interested in fixed gear bikes. And unfortunately, um, a young girl actually died in, um, I think it was Fujian province, in an accident on a fixed gear bike. And as a result, the authorities there were talking about banning them among school students. I mean, given the huge pollution problem in China, is the government doing anything to promote bicycles and bicycle commuting? Um, yes, they are. Um, there are a couple of bike sharing schemes starting to pop up. They haven't become, you know, like massively popular in the same scale that they have in some parts of Europe. They are kind of in their infancy, but they are starting to become more popular. You gotten on the fixie bandwagon yet, Jennifer? I haven't myself, but it is quite tempting. They certainly are very <laughs> colourful looking additions to the, the roads here in Shanghai. Do you bike though in Shanghai? I do. Yes, I do. I, I have a normal bike with, with gears on it, but um, it, it's very flat here in Shanghai, so certainly well suited to fixed gear bikes. So you never know, I might I might make a purchase. And uh, are you able to stereotype the average fixie rider in Shanghai? Do they uh, wear black and listen to indie bands? Um, I suppose a lot of them do. <laughs> I suppose a lot of them do. You see a lot of different people riding fixies. The fixie culture here is sort of young professional because a lot of the bikes are quite expensive. I think in one specialist shop where I I checked them out, they were I think about the equivalent of about eight hundred US dollars for a really really good one. So I think in general, yeah, quite young professionals I think who are have a bit of disposable income and are looking for maybe a fashion item. 
Jennifer Duggan lives in Shanghai. She's an environment blogger for London's Guardian newspaper and apparently now a fashion reporter, too. Jennifer, thanks a lot. Thanks very much. The subject of our final story today started out from humble beginnings in his native Brazil. Now, Sao Paulo-based rapper Criolo has become a sort of bard of the favelas. Reporter Marissa Neff has his story. When Criolo's parents were in their early 20s, they left the northeast of Brazil to search for a better life down south. But when they made it to Sao Paulo, all they could afford was a mud floor shack in one of the city's favelas. It's where they raised Criolo and his four siblings. And themes of migration and struggle shape Criolo's lyrics to this day. The São Paulo MC started rapping at age 11. By listening to Brazilian hip-hop, he says he started to grasp the power of words and language. The play of words caught my attention. It was magical to see a rhyme being built. It was very strong for me. Today, he's known as something of a bard of the favelas, a voice for those living below the radar in cities like Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, despite Brazil's growing wealth. His biggest hit is a song called Now Existe Amor en SIP, or Love Doesn't Exist in Sao Paulo. Now existe amor en SIP, un labirinto mystico. Criolo says the song came from a basic empathy for those trying to scrape together a decent life in South America's biggest city. There are so many people in this city, people who struggle a lot, people who are good and deserve our respect. So this song is a cry for the city of Sao Paulo to treat its citizens better. That's it. The video accompanying Criolo's hit song is a slideshow of photos of graffiti from all over Sao Paulo. Each frame depicts spray-painted phrases that call for more love in the city. Every person is a universe. If there are a billion residents, there will be a billion problems. But even though we have a billion problems, there's a flip side because we have 10 billion good things to share with one another. Criolo's music has struck a chord far beyond the São Paulo dwellers, or Paulistanos, featured in his verses. At a show in New York's Central Park last year, an international crowd of thousands sang along with every word of Now Existe Amor. And Brazilian music royalty like Caetano Veloso and Chico Buarque have hailed Criolo's lyrics as visionary. Veloso went as far as to say that Criollo is possibly the most important figure on the Brazilian pop scene today. High praise coming from an icon whose politically charged songs in the 60s and 70s helped loosen the grip of Brazil's military dictatorship. The encouragement of musicians like Buarque and Veloso bodes well for the 37-year-old MC. Today's Brazil, a democratic nation with a booming economy that's preparing to host both the World Cup and the Olympics, is a very different place from the one those singers grew up in. But the great economic divide remains the country's predominant social issue. 
and Criolo is raising awareness about the plight of Brazil's have-nots through music. For the world, I'm Marissa Neff. Haja coração, dez mil pessoas numa favela na quermesse do campão e é de cavalcante. Oito sique, Frida Kahlo tem o mesmo valor que a benzedeira do bairro. Criolo, another great voice from Brazil. Check out the cool video for Love Doesn't Exist in Sao Paulo at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Till tomorrow, peace out. Jeb, fio é lona, criolo doido não é garapa, ideia rápida, mas soma. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.